The United Nations have what they call Human Development Index. It is a way of ranking nations of the world according to how developed or underdeveloped they are. It looks at life expectancy, it looks at education, it looks at income and so on. In the 2010 Human Development Index, Australia came second. We are the second most developed nation in the world according to the United Nations. In a recent news poll survey of Australians, 62% said they can't afford everything they need. Not everything they want, everything they need. We are one of the richest countries in the world and yet we are a nation that is full of people who are discontent. People who are discontent with how they look, people who are discontent with their work, people who are discontent with their houses, people who are discontent with their spouses, with their parents, people who are discontent with their income. The second most developed country in the world and almost two-thirds of Australians say they can't afford everything they really need. There's a book by Clive Hamilton called Growth Fetish, which is all about contentment in Australia. He's not a Christian. He says the level of discontentment is the difference between what we have and what we want. In other words, if what we want is what we have, we're content. We don't want any more. If what we want is more than what we have, we're discontent. And he calls that gap the margin of discontent. The bigger the gap, the more discontent we are. He goes on to say that the advertising industry exists to make that gap bigger. The aim of advertising is to stop you being content. If you have everything you want, you won't go out and buy new things. So he says, discontent must be continually manufactured if modern consumerism is to survive. This explains the indispensable role of the advertising industry. It reinforces the insidious sense that something is missing to create the conditions for serial disappointment, yet to sustain hope that more of what has so far failed will ultimately succeed. In other words, the ads that you see on TV those leaflets that are personally delivered into your mailbox, they exist to make you unhappy with what you have. Because the more discontent you are, the more likely you are to buy. In Australia alone, $11 billion was spent on advertising. $11 billion spent on stopping you from being content. No wonder we are a nation of discontent people. This morning we're looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and that is the issue that we get dropped in at, contentment. If you have a look on your outline, you can see where we're going. Firstly, we're looking at the love of money and then the problem with wealth and then contentment. This is our last talk on Ecclesiastes, so it might be good for us to do a, a quick recap before we hit chapter 5. Uh, some of you have been away. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1, we were introduced to the writer of Ecclesiastes, King Solomon. And King Solomon began in verse 2 by asking the question, what do we gain from all our work under the sun? What is the point of everything that we do? And his answer, nothing. 
There's no point. Whatever stuff we get is gone when we die. Our life here is short. We don't know what will happen tomorrow, let alone what after we die. This world is not fair. Good things happen to bad people. Bad things happen to good people. Everything is meaningless. And so the first four chapters of Ecclesiastes haven't really given us any answers. The best it can come up with is, don't worry, be happy. In fact, it seems, doesn't it, that the book of Ecclesiastes has been written to get us to ask questions about life rather than give us the answers, questions that lead us to Jesus. Although last week we saw something a little bit different. Last week we stepped outside of that bubble of what we can observe about the world and in the last six verses of Ecclesiastes we were told to fear God. And in fact, we see a little hint of that at the start of this chapter here, as Emily was reading. You might have noticed these few verses are talking about God, which is different to the rest of the book. And there's a level of seriousness about them. The tone changes. Verse 2, don't be hasty to utter anything before God. Verse 4, when you make a vow to God, don't delay in fulfilling it. Why? Because God is to be feared. Verse 7, stand in awe of God. That's the same Um, word for fear God in the last chapter of Ecclesiastes. That is the key to understanding life. You can't work out answers to life's big questions just by looking around the world. The book of Proverbs, in fact, which is also written by King Solomon, begins by saying, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And because Proverbs starts with the fear of God, it is a far more positive book, isn't it? Proverbs shows us how to live when we fear God. Ecclesiastes explores what life is like without fearing God. And then it ends by telling us to fear him. It's as if Ecclesiastes wants to strip everything else from us to get us to the point where we do fear God. And this morning, what Ecclesiastes wants to strip from us is the love of money. Let's pick it up at Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Verse 8. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. The problem is not with money. The problem is that if you love money, you will never have enough. Because the more you have, the more you want. And in fact, this is one of the causes of oppression that we were thinking about last week. People oppress because they want more. The tragic thing, though, is that Ecclesiastes was written at a time when there was enough for everyone in the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel was at its peak under the great King Solomon. In 1 Kings 4, verse 20, it says, The people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate, they drank, and they were happy. And Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines. During Solomon's lifetime, Judah and Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, lived in safety, each man under his own vine and fig tree. See, it's a picture of plenty. In King Solomon's reign, there was enough food for everyone in Israel to eat 
and drink and be satisfied. But that wasn't enough for some people. For some people, the more they have, the more they want. The prophet Isaiah comes 300 years later, but he describes Israel's problem as this. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. See, people in their greed are not satisfied with their own field, so they buy their neighbour's field. And they add that to their own field and then they add the new neighbour's field to that field and the new neighbour's field to that, gaining more and more. What about the people who don't have good business skills? Well, they're left with nothing. The problem is not the money itself. There's nothing wrong with money. The problem is the love of money. The problem is the discontentment that drives you to want more and more for the sake of having more. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. It's not just a problem for King Solomon's time, though, is it? Ecclesiastes was written 3,000 years ago, but it's a modern book and it describes us. Are you satisfied with your income? If you're not, maybe you love money. One of the richest men in America, Rockefeller, was a multi-billionaire. He asked, how much money does it take to satisfy a man? His answer, just that little bit more. In the Age newspaper, it was reported that Victorians spent more on poker machines in the week that the $600 family bonus was first issued than in any other week of the year. Why? Because they wanted to turn their $600 into more. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. We are like Eve in the Garden of Eden. We have everything that we need, yet we believe the lie that we're missing out. We believe the lie that we need what we don't have. That's the problem with the love of money. Once it grabs hold of you, it is never satisfied. King Solomon moves on from describing the discontent that comes from wanting more to the damage that more can cause. Verse 11. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? The sleep of a labourer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. This is like we saw three weeks ago when we were thinking about work. The more money that you have, the more there is to worry about. And so the person who loves money lies in bed worrying about their money, worrying about their investments, worrying about their superannuation. Money doesn't make you happy. It brings worry. In fact, money can make you very unhappy. Australians spend $19 billion a year on gambling. That is almost $1,000 for every man, woman, child and baby per year. You can bet on sport, you can bet on election results, you can even bet on who will win the Triple J Hottest 100. You can bet on anything. Last year, of all the people admitted to the emergency department at Prince Alfred Hospital in Sydney for attempted suicide, one-fifth of them 
were problem gamblers. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun. Wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner or wealth lost through some misfortune so that when he has a son there's nothing left for him. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labour that he can carry in his hand. Whether you have a lot or whether you have a little bit, when you die, it's all gone anyway. It is so fleeting. There's no guarantee that it will make you happy. In fact, chasing it may make you unhappy. In Growth Fetish, Clive Hamilton has a chapter asking the question, does money make people happier? And he looks at some statistics. He says that up to a certain level, money does make you happy. You need to be above the poverty line. That amount is about $10,000 Australian. In countries where people earn under $10,000, they are often unhappy because there's no food, there's no clothing, there's no house. But above $10,000 per year, there is no relationship between happiness and money at all. No correlation. Whether you earn 10000 20000 100000 500000 no correlation between money and happiness. In fact, in the USA in the last 30 years, real incomes have increased by 400%, but the number of Americans who describe themselves as very happy went down. Clive Hamilton says the richest people in the world are saying they are miserable, that it's not worth it, and most disturbingly of all, that the process of getting rich causes the problems. What about winning lotto? We all know that doesn't make you happy, doesn't it? A study of winners of major lotteries found that they were no happier than a control sample, but that they took significantly less pleasure in mundane events. But people still buy lotto tickets. Clive Hamilton says, people know these things are hollow, yet they still chase them. That's the stupidity of it. We know that money won't make us happier, yet we would still like more of it. We believe the lie that if we get a little bit more, it'll make us happy. Whatever money that you have, think of what you could do with a little bit more. That's the lie. Look at this ad. Imagine yourself in 10 years. Are you happy? What is that an ad for? What could possibly guarantee your happiness in 10 years? Financial investments, of course. That ad is part of the $11 billion campaign selling you the lie that money will make you happy. Money is seductive. If you love it, you'll never have enough of it. If you do have a lot of it, it gives you something to worry about. And when you lose it, it can destroy your life. So what's the solution? What is the alternative, not the alternative to money, what is the alternative to the love of money? Contentment. The alternative is contentment, to be happy with what you have. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 18. Then I realised that it is good and proper for a man to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in his toilsome labour under the sun during the few days of life God has given him, for this is his lot. 
Moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot and be happy in his work, this is a gift of God. He seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with gladness of heart. That is a picture of what contentment might look like. To accept your lot, to find satisfaction in what you have. Not to want more, but to accept that what you have is a gift from God and be happy with it. Now, King Solomon says this is a good thing to have contentment. And we'd agree, wouldn't we? Does anyone here want to be discontent? Put up your hand if you want to be unhappy with what you have. Of course we don't. It is good to be content. We want to be content. The problem is King Solomon doesn't tell us how to be. And he himself certainly didn't find it. King Solomon was discontent. He could write this whole book of Ecclesiastes. He had everything he needed, but he wanted more. In 1 Kings 10.23, it says King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings on the earth. Was it enough? No. He wanted more and more to the point where he disobeyed God. He went and imported horses from Egypt, where God told him, which God told him not to do. He personally amassed gold and silver for himself, which God told him not to do. He married foreign wives, which God told him not to do. He was not content with what he had, and it was his undoing. As you read King, 1 Kings 11, it is a tragedy. His desire for more leads him away from God. What we're reading in Ecclesiastes is King Solomon's tragic autobiography, his attempt to find an answer to life. He really did have everything he could possibly want, yet it wasn't enough. And his desire for more destroyed him. The alternative to that is contentment. King Solomon knew it, but he couldn't live it. He wasn't content. So what is the secret of being content? How do you be content? Turn with me to Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. Philippians 4.10, Paul is writing about contentment. He happens to be writing from jail, so it's not the best of circumstances. Philippians 4, verse 10. I I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. The secret to contentment is it is not the things around us that make us content. If you're not content, a change of life circumstances won't make you content. It is your relationship with your heavenly father. The greatest thing in this world, what you were made for, to know God... Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. He's talking about eternal life. Once you have that, you have everything. 
And the secret of contentment is not to try and find your contentment in other things. That's why Paul can say, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Did you notice, though, that contentment is not just something that you wake up with one morning? Paul says he learned it. You learn it as you learn to trust God. You learn contentment when the things around you are stripped away and you turn to God. You learn contentment as you learn to shut out those 600 ads that each of us see each day telling you to be discontent. You learn contentment as you read God's word and let it shape your priorities. Paul talks about it again in 1 Timothy 6. Turn to me to 1 Timothy 6. This is Paul writing to Timothy. 1 Timothy 6 verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all of this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. See, this is a call to arms. Don't chase money, chase righteousness. Don't pursue wealth, pursue godliness. We are in a fight. Look at verse 12. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Now that's not going to be an easy fight because we live in a nation where this is our biggest temptation. Last January, the BBC did an article on the most sinful nature in the world. Guess which nation won? Little old Australia in the bottom right corner. We flogged the other nations. When you look at the breakdown though, why were we the worst nation? We were... Um, you can't read that, but I'll email it to anyone if they want it. We were the worst nation for envy, wanting what other people have. We were the third worst nation for gluttony. We were the fourth worst nation for greed. Overall, we topped the polls as the worst, most sinful nation in the world. This is our country, Australia. We're steeped in it. Don't think that you can live here and it not impact you. We spend $11 billion a year telling ourselves that we need more. And down in verse 17 of 1 Timothy 6, Paul has a special command to us who live in Australia. Verse 17, Command those who are rich in this present world, I assume that includes number two nation in the world, not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, 
but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. See, yet again, Jesus changes everything. We have gone from whoever loves money, never has money enough, to people who love God will give their money away, sharing it with others. That is the power of the gospel. It's not a set of rules about what we do or don't do with our money or what we spend it on or don't spend it on. It's not a rule about giving 10% or more or less. It is about being freed from the slavery to the love of money so that you can give your money away. It is about being made into generous people who give our money away all over the place and we enjoy it. King Solomon had all the money in the world. He did not find contentment. You can. You just need to learn the secret. Let's pray. Father, thank you that a book that was written 3,000 years ago can speak so directly to us today. Father, thank you that your word is living and active. And Father, thank you that it helps us assess our own lives and the times in which we live. Father, we pray that you would help us to, to clearly see when we are starting to love money. We pray that we might flee from it and pursue righteousness and godliness and generosity. Father, forgive us for the times when we believe the lies that we're sold. And we pray that by your spirit you might change us to make us into people who are content. And we pray that in this evil nation of Australia we might stand out a mile away because of our generosity and because of our love for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.